Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience specializing in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? So I have the pleasure of sitting down again with Mara, our seasoned client. And maybe we should give you the title of resident client because she guessed it previously on episode 22 entitled When Your Therapist Makes You Squirm, where she talked about her experiences in therapy and primarily her relationship with her therapist and many uncomfortable aspects of her process. But she ended the episode with some rapid fire questions, those questions she's always wanted an inside scoop on regarding how therapy works, or maybe more so how or what the therapist is really thinking. So We agreed to have a follow-up where she could ask more of her burning questions, which I also thought that many folks might have an interest in, in learning about therapy and sharing some of her thoughts and feelings around it. So again, like last time, I don't know what's on her mind, but I'm going to welcome her asks. But my answers this time around may get a bit deeper rather than the fire rapid fire method. So Mara, what do you got? Oh, but actually, I'm going to start with asking you a question. How long have you been sitting on these types of questions? And with all of your experiences in therapy, how come you haven't asked these of your therapists? Starting with the tough questions right off the bat. Um, that's a good but question. <laughs> that is a really good question. I never really even thought to ask my therapist that question. I guess maybe in our last conversation, we uncovered some issues that I may have with confrontation. (laughs) So maybe that plays a role. I don't know. Maybe we should uh, psychoanalyze that a little bit more, but um, maybe just not really feeling comfortable. Maybe just feeling like they don't want to disclose their personal lives or personal feelings about things to me, trying to respect their boundaries, even though obviously I'm making up their boundaries in my own head. I guess that was pretty rapid fire, but that's my, (laughs) those are my two ideas. Fair enough that you haven't really given that thought. So let's see if somehow this ends up being about you or just about therapy in general. Let's see what happens. You never know with my focus. So (laughs) go ahead and hit it, hit it. All right. These are kind of random and sporadic, but let's just go. And some of these are picking up from last time. I know we, we, there was a few that I still had left over that I saved um, to continue this time. So I guess starting right off the bat, and this may have a little bit of personal, uh, a little personal touch to it, but does it ever get boring or annoying for you as a therapist to hear someone talk about the same scenario or situation over and over again? 
I think you actually did ask me that I last did? time. And let's see. Yeah, let's see if I have a different answer because I don't remember what I said. Oh, I do remember what I said. <laughs> I said that there's something on my mind or if I'm getting bored, I tend to think about what the client is experiencing. Um, so even though I'm the one having the reaction, I often think that what happens in therapy is often representative of what happens outside the therapy. So is it the client who's protecting him or herself in some way and using defenses so that they don't have to emotionally feel something? Because I've noticed in me, and I don't think that this necessarily works this way for all therapists, but for me, I've noticed that my response to being bored is when a client is repressing or suppressing their emotional reactions, responses, or that piece of them, the emotional life. And that tends to make me kind of lose my steam, lose my stamina, um, because usually it results in a lack of affect on their part. And I'm somebody who's pretty animated. And I know that I have a family member or two who tends to present in a very monotone way. And it's very hard to kind of stay present during that. And I think the rule, uh, there is no rules, but I think that the commonality is with this family member. She also kind of suppresses emotions and doesn't deal well with a range of emotions and strong emotions. And so I react to that. So I think that's a great question. Um, I'm not doing rapid fire. It's I can't. It's too deep. Um, <laughs> but I think that uh, it's probably different for every therapist. You know, what makes him or her bored, right? Or why are they getting bored? But I'm going to, I am going to kind of turn this on to you if that's okay. And because it makes me wonder, again, where that question comes from. It has something to do with feeling like you're boring others. Mm, yeah. Without going into too much detail on the specifics of what I talk about all the time, I do feel like what you were saying about your boredom resonates also with my talking about the same thing over and over again in terms of like a defense mechanism. It's like if I'm talking about the same situation over and over again, different examples of the exact same thing kind of happening over and over again, I almost feel like I have, I keep telling my therapist that because I want validation that my feelings are true in this situation, you know, and I, I don't know what inside of me feels like I need that validation over and over and over again. So maybe that would be like something to explore. But then I also am like, why am I talking? Why am I still talking about this? We've been talking about the same thing for like two years. Well, then your therapist probably knows that that is what you need. And I'm sure she wants to give you what you need. So I'm sure that that's for her, part of the focus of the work, and that's part of her intervention, is to provide that validation, knowing that that's what you need until you can take in her voice eventually, I assume, and make it your own so that you won't need external validation. It will come from within. Mm -hmm. So it's it's part of the therapy. Uh, I don't know if that's boring. I mean, that's part of what we do, right? It's yeah. what the client needs. Yeah, totally. I also I also do sometimes feel like I bring this into my personal life too. Like I will talk like when I get stuck on something, like I talk about it, you know, over and over again even with like people in my own personal life and that there are moments where I can definitely tell that people 
in my personal life get sick of me talking about the same, whether it's like something going on at work or like dealing with a coworker or a challenging relative. And I talk about it over and over again. It's like, all right, enough already. Like we get it. Well, that's why you have a therapist who (laughs) probably wouldn't get tired of hearing it, even though I can certainly understand experiencing the reaction from your friends and loved ones and assuming that others are going to have that reaction too, right? So your therapist, what would exclude her from that? But your your friends and your family are emotionally connected to you. Not that your therapist doesn't care for you, but I think, you know, there's certain things that we do in life and our behaviors that penetrate our relationships in not the best way because we don't have an intellectual understanding of why this might be happening for you. And so we just react as people and lose our patience or get annoyed. But a therapist not only has the uh, emotional understanding, but the intellectual understanding. And it's often those in complement of each other that allow one to work well with you. Mm-hmm. Okay, back to you. Back to uh, <laughs> no more therapizing me. <laughs> but that is a good point. Okay, okay. Um, but I guess I'm I'm just I put it on you because to me it goes back to this idea of context. The context of your question is so important because mm-hmm. in a way too, I don't want people out there to think that therapists get bored easily. It, it mm-hmm. depends, there's so many elements that go into a relationship. It's a very complex relationship. Mm-hmm. It's actually funny because now now that I have this lens on it, I'm like reading all my questions. Like a lot of them are very, uh, have a lot of context okay. behind them, which is actually kind of funny. Um, but moving on to my next one that you <laughs> probably may throw back onto me. Do you ever feel uncomfortable when people cry in therapy or if they don't cry ever? Oh, that's an interesting question. All your questions are interesting. I can certainly speak about my response, but I am going to generalize it first, okay? So I often talk about this idea that we have a hard time, we as in people, human beings, therapist or client or anybody, has a hard time sitting with people in their distress. And that's why we're so inclined to try and make people feel better. And often that leads to providing a silver lining, right? Oh, at least it's not this bad or, you know, it'll get better when we don't really know it's going to get better or we try and problem solve. I think that speaks to having a hard time sitting with the feelings. So I think the more one practices that, the easier it gets. So now I'll come back to me. If I'm sitting with someone who's crying my heart goes out to them often. I feel a lot of empathy. I feel with them in the moment, which is why also this work can be draining because you're taking on the client's emotions a lot of the time, whether they can feel them or not. So if a client is crying, you're taking it on. If they're not crying, for example, when you think they should be, you're potentially experiencing the pain that they're not able to. So in either form, you're emotionally holding them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I think I've gotten good at sitting with people in their distress. It's hard sometimes because, of course, you want them to feel better. And, of course, sometimes you think that they have the expectation that you're going to make them feel better. But oftentimes them just being able to emote and having somebody sit with them in those feelings is so powerful and so holding that they don't need an answer. 
So in a sense, that's relieving to the therapist who doesn't have to fix the problem because oftentimes, again, uh, problems are complex and we can't just fix them just every time they pop up or there's strong emotion attached to them. Mm -hmm. And what about the not crying? So now when you say not crying, do you mean like, and there's a sense that they should be or that they don't really... um, show their emotions or they're not in touch with their emotions. Yeah. Like don't show that vulnerability or that, like, I guess maybe crying doesn't equal the only, you know, way to show vulnerability, but like not projecting a lot of emotion, I guess. Often. And what was the last part? Like often. Often. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's a question that's going to make me think hard. So I don't know if I equate that to those who are concrete, right? There's those clients who really kind of see things as black and white, and they don't really do a lot of the deeper work. And I don't know if that's connected to what you're asking, but then there's others who are really insightful and they dig deeper. And when you dig deeper, there's more emotions to unpack and uncover. So a lot of times, even the concrete, clients can become insightful and you work with them to develop that awareness and that self-reflection and that insight. So until we get there, I I probably have a little bit more of a hard time with that than the ones who are overtly and deeply emotional. Whereas again, another therapist might have an easier time with that, find that a challenge, enjoy that. And really take it to heart or take it home with them when the client emotes deeply. So it's individualistic, right? Mm-hmm. Just like I always say, each client is unique and an individual, and there's not a one-stop book or rule for each client. It's it's the same with the therapist, which is why it's important to find a good fit for you in, in terms of what kind of therapist works well for you. So I'm I'm whatever questions you have from here on in, it's the, you know, Amy Myers response, not mm-hmm. the therapist response. Does that make sense? That I makes sense. I don't represent all therapists. That makes sense. Well, actually, this is kind of a off the book question, but what you said just made me think of that for people out there who may be wanting to find a therapist who don't have one right now and may, may want to understand how to find the right fit. What would be a recommendation of things to ask or how to find the right therapist for you. Part of me wants to say, you just know when you know, you'll feel it. Even though I also know that there's a lot of inexperienced therapists that out there or who haven't had advanced training and may have their MSW, which doesn't really train you to do therapy per se. And then they go and they hang their shingle and do therapy. So, I mean, I think it's important to do a little legwork, do a little research, understand the differences in types of training and ways of working, maybe speak to a couple of therapists and ask them those questions to understand what you need. Because as we know, there's psychodynamic therapy, there's interpersonal therapy, there's um, cognitive behavioral therapy, and I could go on and on. But are you somebody who wants solutions and to change your thought patterns and to work behaviorally with the idea of kind of rewards and homework? That would be a more CBT approach, cognitive behavioral. A psychodynamic approach is more so to bring your unconscious 
thoughts into awareness because the more aware you are of them, then the more you have the ability to change them. If you're not aware, how do you change things, right? But also awareness doesn't just bring about change. So it's also about working with understanding your development, your life experience, and how that impacts the way that you function and relate to people now. So, I mean, that's the, you know, you want to wrap a fire. That is kind of the quick and dirty response. But I think like you just kind of know whether something's working for you or not. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could do a whole episode about that. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Going back to more like emotional questions. So what happened back to the kind of crying, crying, not crying scenario? What happens if you feel the need to show emotion when somebody's telling you do you are you trained to just suppress your emotion or like what if some, they say something and that makes you feel like you need to cry or even laugh or just whatever anything right well i think you know i was trained i say i'm a psychodynamic therapist but i was actually trained psychodynamically and that goes back to this idea of kind of a blank slate where you're really kind of in control of your emotions and you have to be very careful with what you show and it's not to be withholding, but it's to allow the client more so to free them up to be who they are without worrying about what's going on with you. That being said, I think I've moved considerably from psychoanalysis to more of using myself and being myself. And I think as with anything I say or do in therapy, I have to always question whom is it serving? So sometimes if somebody's in pain and the therapist cries, that just touches a client in a way that words can't. It's validating, it's holding, it's all these kind of good feelings for them. But I don't think a therapist should make themselves cry. So if it's genuine, it's genuine. And you can't control it because therapists are human beings too. And sometimes things are really, really sad. But as I said, since everything depends on the therapist and depends on the client, you may have a client who has her therapist cry and is really thrown by that. Like, you can't handle my emotions. If you can't handle my emotions, who can? So it it depends. Sometimes the therapist can't control it, and the therapist just has to see how that resonates with the client. Was that satisfying, or was that really upsetting to the clients? Mm. Does that answer you? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It seems hard though. I'm empathizing with you because it's like you have to make these like real time decisions. Well, part of what I'm oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say you have to make these real time decisions on something that seems hard to for most people to control. Like if you're about to cry, or it seems hard to like is, is this the right thing to do, and then suppress it if it's not. You know, it seems hard. Well, I, yeah, I maybe I need to clarify because I know on one hand I said I always consider whom is this serving, right? But mm-hmm. on the other hand, I'm human, and if I cry, I'm, I I can't fight it back beyond the reality of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to be sobbing most likely. That's really never happened to me. But will my eyes well up? Sure, right? Sure. And part of being empathic, we use our words to validate what a client is experiencing. That must be so upsetting or, wow, that's really hard. And sometimes 
<clears throat> excuse me, our physical gestures by nodding, showies, showing shows that we're there with them, that we're empathic. And so sometimes maybe that welled up tear certainly shows that you, you're getting them. But I'm not mm-hmm. going to command a tear. If it's genuine, it's genuine. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, but I think I think our listeners will be really interested to know from the client perspective what the thought is around your question regarding do you do you want your client do you want your therapist to cry or not to cry? How has it made you feel? Have you had the experience? Me personally, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So I. I had like a self-motivated reason for asking this question. I feel like with therapists in the past, I'm the opposite spectrum. Like I don't get very emotive in therapy. I I don't know why. I, I It must go back to my childhood. I feel like crying in my household was always just like a very, you do it in private kind of a thing. I never really saw my parents ever cry or, or get that emotional whenever I felt like I needed to cry, I would always go hide in my closet. I'm not even kidding. So I just don't feel comfortable in therapy. It just doesn't come naturally to me. But I do feel like this hasn't just been with one therapist. It's like multiple therapists. In the off chance that I ever do cry in therapy, they always seem so like, I don't want to say like excited about it because that makes it seem like they're like not empathetic to my crying, but they're always you did really good today when, when when I cried. And then I always kind of think about that. Should I be crying more. I wish I could. I think I'd maybe feel better if I let out more emotion like that, but it just, it's just hard, hard for me to do that. Maybe they mean that you allowed yourself to be vulnerable. And mm-hmm. by saying you did really well, they're saying, I, I can tolerate it. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Because it sounds like, you know, you've had experiences where the messaging within your home was, we don't do this. So mm-hmm. it's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like the therapist might be giving you permission to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But I don't, I wish it was easier for me because I, even with my current therapist, I do feel comfortable. It just doesn't, it's not, even if I feel like I want to, it's like hard for me to do that mm-hmm. <laughs> comfortably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a self-motivated question. No, I assume I most of these wondered. are. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> That's where this is coming from, right? <laughs> but I think that your questions are going to serve our audience because these are things that either they've wondered about too or hadn't wondered about. And I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. I can go Doing into my next Public one. service, Mara. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay. So these ones, these two are kind of related and again, self-motivated, but I always feel like wrapping up a therapy session at the end of it is always so hard like I don't know why it's like it doesn't ever feel like a good time to just like okay now we're like cutting it off and it's it's over and we're see you next week kind of a thing it always feels like it's like hard to end it and so I'm always so I'm wondering from your perspective do you feel disrespected if a client goes five minutes over or they start to talk about something within the last five minutes of the session and you're like, oh, this is a 20-minute thing. Why did you wait this long to bring this up? Disrespected? Definitely not. Mm-hmm. I think it's an art to, as the, from the therapist's point of view, to learn how to wrap up the session for the client who can't 
end or needs more time or inevitably feels cut off. I have found it difficult in the sense of feeling guilty, right? I feel bad. I don't ever want to make somebody feel like I'm cutting them off. So it's funny. I feel like a lot of the people I work with seem to be aware of the time. And especially now with meetings over Zoom where that clock is staring you in the face, they have control over that. And I think that probably gives them a sense of comfort because then they can monitor how to close themselves up. Now, of course, there are always people who still don't know how to close themselves up. Mm. So again, definitely not disrespected, but just try and help them know that we can continue this conversation. It's not the end. And if there's somebody who has a hard time regulating their emotions, then I'm aware of the time to allow us to start processing the end, maybe like 10 minutes before the actual end of the session, if that makes sense. So I'll find something in what they're saying to try and wrap it up, knowing that they take a longer time to digest it and, like I said, emotionally regulate themselves to be able to end. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It does seem like a hard thing to do, though. On whose end? Like both, like kind of both. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like on my on my side of things, like sometimes I feel like for me it takes me a little bit of time to I don't want to say warm up in therapy, but it kind of feels like that. It's like oh, I'll talk about some surface level things, in the especially for me because I do my therapy usually after work. So right after I finish work, it's like oh, I just want to vent about the day's things, you know. Yeah. And then it kind of takes me, and almost I don't want to say almost like avoiding the emotional stuff, but it's ugh, like, maybe I don't want to like go there right now. It takes me a second to be ready for, for that. But then I feel like by the time I'm like ready for that, it's like towards the end. <laughs> and then I kind of can tell I'm like, ugh, like, I know this was annoying. I don't know if you can tell that or you assume that. I probably so, assume that. Yeah. Because my sense from having talked with you last time And back on the trail, as I explained in episode 22 regarding how we met and took lots of hikes together, that you're concerned about your therapist's feelings and not wanting to upset her. Now you're saying disrespect, not wanting to make her angry or feel bad. And I would assume that this is something that gets projected onto her again, you know, within the theme of a lot of things that happen between the client and the therapist are representative of what goes on on outside of the therapy. Mm -hmm. So that this is an indication of something you need to work on in, in terms of worrying about how other people are receiving you. Because from my experience of you, I don't experience most, if not all of the things that you think I am. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think you often preface, like you probably are going to think that blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. no, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I think that you have your own uh, sense of things and mm-hmm. to trust in the other person. It's funny. A lot of times we need to work on trusting ourselves, but your voice, your inner voice isn't so kind. So you need to start taking in what people are really giving you and reading that better. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that does make sense. It's funny how all these questions kind of circle back to me in a way. Yeah. 
everybody. Well, that's what I think would happen. That's why, you know, if you ask these questions to your therapist, it's such great content to work on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought to do that. Okay, I have two more questions. One of them's a hard one and one of them's a fun one. Do you want to end on the fun one? (laughs) How do you know how I define hard and how I define fun are the same as how you define hard and fun? So all right, well, I'm going to ask the hard one. I wanted to give you, I wanted to do it at the end to give you an opportunity to maybe cut it, but (laughs) to exit, to exit, to end the session. session. Okay. Okay. So what do you do if you feel like someone that you're working with is I guess I'll use this word. You might not like it. Maybe you will. I don't know. But if you feel like somebody is unfixable. Oh, wow. This is a hard one, right? This doesn't sound fun. Yeah. <laughs> this is the hard one. Um, if someone, what do I do if I find that somebody is unfixable? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I don't know what unfixable is. I just know that I might not be the best person to work with somebody. How about mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. So to me, unfixable is if you're a sociopath. Like we we can't fix that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you don't have mm-hmm. a conscience at all, like we can't develop one. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, oftentimes I feel it goes back to fit. Maybe I'm not the right person to work with this client. Maybe I don't have either the patience, the specialty, the expertise in a particular area. I don't know if you're going for something more specific, but uh, no. Okay. Mm. No. Okay. Well, then that's my answer. And then, so then what do you do in that situation? Like, is it hard for you to, like, do you break up with this client in the same way that we were talking about me breaking up with my therapist last time? And then as a patient, are there any hints you can get if you think your therapist is on the verge of wanting you to move on from them? Um, I sometimes think if there's like a roadblock and you've been working together for maybe a period of time and you see that it's not progressing, you have to kind of wonder, is it due to the client's resistance to change? Because I often say discomfort is comfortable because it's familiar. And so when they start trying on something new or learning something about themselves that they may not like, they may start to kind of put up barriers or defenses or walls to progress through the work. Mm -hmm. And if those are so instilled, I might say really doesn't feel like we're getting anywhere. You might want to consider working with someone else or taking a break from therapy. That is, of course, if I can't get to with them what might be going on, that they're putting up these defenses So I'll give you another example. This is so many years ago. I had a client who had blood cancer. He was my age. I was in my mid-20s and he was in his mid-20s and the cancer really eroded his body. He was walking with crutches. He, He was in constant pain and he was married, but there were some real difficulties in the marriage that he was not willing to address. And so I'm assuming at the time that he felt incredibly emasculated, powerless over his body. I don't believe he felt that his wife loved him or was interested in him sexually. And he developed what is called an erotic transference to me. Now, it's not as simple as it sounds. Erotic, oh, meaning he was sexualizing me or was interested in me. That's part of it. 
but it was to the point where that was all that he could focus on. He would not be able to do any of the exploratory process that was necessary in understanding the transference, meaning that he was really interested in me because here I was, somebody who was interested in him, in my role, very curious about him. And that can be seductive to anybody, whether it's somebody who's not sexually attracted to you or is it's just seductive. You you can fall in love with your therapist or really like them or wish they were your friend because where do you get that kind of undivided attention, that empathy, that holding that I was referring to? So in this case, he was getting that from me. He sexualized it. He started leaving me anonymous notes in my office when I had stepped out saying that I can make you really happy from your, from anonymous. I think that's how he would literally sign it. Then he would sign, send me a dozen flowers and say, I have a lot of money. I can make you very happy. Again, speaking to his sense of emasculation, that that's what he needed to do. That would be the way that I would, that he would win my heart, right? If he had money, that's how inept he felt about himself. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the point is, is that he was so focused on this, that the content of our therapy sessions became, oh, the reason you don't want to go out with me is because I'm too short. Oh, the reason, and when I would try and bring it back to what's going on, what is this really representing? Let's look at how inadequate you feel. He could not, he just could not. So there was no work being done. And this Mm. was an occasion, of course, that I would tell him that we're not working well together and he's crossing boundaries that are very uncomfortable and I'm going to have to refer him to somebody else. Wow. And is that hard? Well, that was really hard then because I was fresh out of you know graduate school and mm-hmm. had no experience under my belt. And uh, yeah, and, and it felt very rejecting. And I would mm-hmm. probably have that same sense of rejection now. I don't want to hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if he doesn't have the insight to see it, that that's ha- of what's happening, that's how he's going to experience it, just as a rejection. But again, mm-hmm. that he's inadequate, furthering you know the feeling that he had with his wife. So yeah, that feels terrible. Uh, even now, I would think so. But I know intellectually, this is the emotional intellectual crossover. Emotionally, it's uncomfortable. Intellectually, I know it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, should I do the fun one now? Should we end on the fun? It's time for fun. <laughs> okay, I, I surprise, already know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask anyway so that our listeners can uh, hear what you have to say about this. But if you weren't going to be a therapist, what would you be instead and why? You think you know this, but you know what? I don't even really know this. So I remember you've asked me this before and I don't remember what I said. Because uh, I'm wed to my career. I love it. And I don't fantasize about doing anything else, honestly. I fantasize about like appearing on a show like Oprah, who that doesn't exist anymore. But Mm -hmm. um, having a good old time like this, these are conversations I love. I would love to have this in a more public forum. But aside from that, if I had to say, you can tell me if it matches what you remember that I said... I would want to work in a video store that also doesn't exist anymore. 
where um, I can make recommendations and talk film because once upon a time I had the idea of this doesn't this will only speak to the listeners who are over a certain age bracket. There was a TV guide, and in it there would be reviews of shows, and and there was also Siskel and Ebert who were movie reviewers, and I thought oh, I can I could write some good movie reviews because I'm very critical of movies and very picky, as my friends say, about what I like, what I don't like. And so I guess that. And then and then maybe, maybe something to do with dogs. Well, I don't know what that looks like. So so what was the answer? I forget. That was, that was consistent. That was consistent with what you told me. But I guess, okay, if you have time, one more fun one. What's your favorite movie? Oh my God, that's so ironic that, well, it's not ironic that you would ask me that because that seemed just like a make sense question after that last answer. But ironic because as much of a critic as I am, I don't know if I have a favorite. I'm not that person that watches the same movie over and over and over and quotes from movies and things like that. I mean, one that has always stuck in my mind was was when Harry met Sally because I I believe that the premise of that movie, aside from it being just so cute and enjoyable, the premise, which is, I don't believe that uh, men and women, and in, of course now uh, it could be women and women and men and men as well, but I don't think that people can have a friendship um, without at some point one of them being attracted to the other, if you're sexually interested in that gender and it may be at different times. It may not match when the other person is crushing on the other person. But I think friendships are very difficult in the romantic potential realm. And I just love the way that that represented that. That's actually really funny that you say that because me and my boyfriend started out as being friends. And uh, four years later, we're obviously we're not friends. So uh, there definitely there must are. be some truth to that. <laughs> What's your favorite I love that movie? movie. Oh, that's a good question and hard to answer. I think my first, I I think Finding Nemo, I know that's like a kid's movie, but I just love it. I love scuba diving is one of my favorite activities. I studied abroad in Australia, which is a feel good movie. I just, I could watch oh, it. Oh, that's really cute. Any, anytime. <laughs> so I can't comment on that. Um, thumbs up or thumbs down, but I trust your judgment. And <laughs> since animated movies are not just for children, but adults seem to love them as well. I've never really watched them. I think that there's a lot of kind of hidden jokes and meanings, aren't there? It, and does that movie mm-hmm. have that as well? Yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So maybe yeah. our audience will DM us about <laughs> Harry Met Sally or Finding Nemo. What do you think? <laughs> I don't even know if those two are comparable. Well, it's a deep philosophical question that we'll end on. Which one? And what does that say about you? <laughs> All right, Mara. Well, I mean, those were fantastic questions. I knew I knew you'd pull them out. And thank uh, you I so much. Had some fun today. Thanks thank for letting me come back. <laughs> of course. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. 
And I've been asking myself What would Dr. Myers do?